Good morning. Welcome to our study. Let's be ready with our Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3 at verse 9. Colossians 3 and verse 9. We'll touch on these things in this class. Honesty and other associated virtues that we are able to nourish and fulfill as we abide in Christ. God gives us the ability through Christ to learn and practice these good virtues. We'll talk about the true unity in diversity that we enjoy in Christ, and in addition, the peace of God that rules in our hearts. So, should you have any interest in these things I've mentioned, you will want to join in with this study and read and listen carefully in Colossians 3, 9 through 15. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we express our gratitude and love for Thee and our appreciation for who Jesus is and what He did for us. May these elements of our faith motivate us to listen, to learn, and to live in keeping with Thy will. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians 3, 9 through 15. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, I'm sorry, the old self with its practices. That's as it reads in the English Standard Version. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I'm going to begin our study of this section in Colossians 3 with a single word. And it is a word that should generate an immediate salute of respect. And the word is honesty. Now when you say that word to people who have a good moral base in God's word, there's almost a change in their posture. Honesty. It is something that is upright. It has stature morally. We are respectful of the concept of honesty. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the first few minutes of our study in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 15. Honesty. We rid ourselves of the old life of sin when we are buried with Christ in baptism. Then we have to be engaged in such discipline after baptism 
that these old bad behaviors do not reappear. I'm going to state that again because that encompasses everything we're going to look at from 9 to 15. We rid ourselves of the old life of sin based on the grace of God in the cross when we are buried with Christ in baptism then after baptism we are to be engaged in such good discipline that these old bad behaviors and attitudes do not reappear. So listen to the way verse 9 is written. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So do you see how those two things are fastened together? Do not lie to one another seeing that, that is in view of the fact that you're a converted person in Christ. You have given up that old self with those old practices. See, the last part of verse 9 hammers into our minds the main point of this whole paragraph. Since you become a Christian, you cannot let these old sinful behaviors come back into your conduct. The devil's going to want to take you there, but you must say, no, I'm not going. You're a new person. Renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, the Bible doesn't beat around the bush on the subject of honesty. The Bible doesn't use language that is subject to all manner of qualification or vagueness. The Bible says, do not lie. Do not lie. That's the standard. We don't need to argue and debate or subject this rule to all kinds of hypotheticals and academic analysis. We don't have to run it through all kinds of worldly filters. The Bible says, do not lie. What is expected of us is to simply make this statement our rule. Do not lie. Situation ethics doesn't help us apply this. There is no modern technique of communication somebody recently discovered that provides an avenue around this very simple prohibition from God. Do not lie. And I want you to consider for a moment the value of that. If we would just follow this rule, it would rid us of so much conflict in relationships. One of the number one causes of conflict in marriage and in relationships and friendships and among brethren is dishonesty. So if we just rid ourselves of all dishonesty, it would solve so many things before they occurred. It would rid us of so much conflict in relationships. It would eliminate virtually all gossip. If you just decide I'm not going to lie. It would slow down the rumor mill. And the rumor mill would finally just seize up. Just don't lie. Most important though. It honors God. Who doesn't lie. It imitates that attribute of your father. It is pleasing to God and to Christ. For us to just adopt the simple virtuous, lifelong policy, I will not lie. Honesty. 
Charles Swindoll said, Honesty has a beautiful and refreshing simplicity about it. No ulterior motives, no hidden meanings, an absence of hypocrisy, duplicity, political games, and verbal uh, superficiality. As honesty and real integrity characterize our lives, there will be no need to manipulate others. Honesty. Do not lie. Anything else you'd like to add to that? Not much to add to it. I look around on the internet every now and then for various subjects to kind of get an idea of what folks are thinking and what needs to be answered with biblical truth. I looked around the other day and found an article called 10 Ways to Lie Convincingly. See, you can not only learn how to make a bomb on the internet, you can learn how to ruin your life with God and you can learn how to crash relationships. Ten ways to lie convincingly. And some of the tips were have a backstory ready in case the lie is detected. Enlist friends to serve as false witnesses. Maintain a, maintain a steady voice. On and on. How to tell a lie and get away with it. And it struck me that besides lying being immoral and risky... And against the will of God, it's just complicated. It's complicated. What I love is the simplicity of God's rules. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Anything else? And verse 10 reminds us why we have put off the old man of sin. We are new people in Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And we are in this process of discipline, being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Do not lie. Our study continues at verse 11 <clears throat> in the New King James that some of you have. It says, In Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Not much different is the English Standard Version. Here, <clears throat> there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I want to try to capture the idea. You don't come into the Lord's church and find a room where people like you belong. You don't come into the Lord's church and find the room where people like you belong. The Lord's church is not divided into rooms according to social category and appearance and skin color and nationality and economic status and academic attainment. No. Being in Christ is one place, one relationship where everybody's together, united, faithful to him, united with everybody else who's faithful with him. No matter how different in morally neutral attributes. Now, I, when I use a phrase like that, I need to stop and tell you what I'm talking about. Morally neutral attributes. 
things about me and things about you that are neutral, indifferent, <clears throat> that do not matter as far as discipleship is concerned, as far as our relationship with God is concerned. You can make a whole list of morally neutral attributes. Skin color is a morally neutral attribute. Economic status, way up here in your economic status or week to week trying to make it, morally neutral attribute, all other things being equal. Educational status, how far you went in education. Nationality, and my favorite, physical stature, whether you're short or tall. Morally neutral attributes. Now, here's a list of morally neutral attributes in terms of the first century when Paul wrote to Colossae. Greek, Jew, barbarian background, Scythian background, all morally neutral. Where'd you come from? Where were you born? What's your nationality? Can I check your DNA? No, no. Those are morally neutral attributes. In the Lord's church, there are no class distinctions among the faithful. There's no segregation. Therefore, no discrimination, no prejudice. God, the Bible says, is no respecter of persons. In two primary places in the New Testament where there's a section that deals with prejudice against people, respecting morally neutral attributes, the statement is made, God is no respecter of persons. Acts 10 James chapter 2. So there is this beautiful diversity in Christ that is defined right here. One comes into this relationship by being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Christ to join with others who have been redeemed and renewed and who are following Christ. Come to Christ, confess your faith, repent and obey the command to be baptized and you're a member of the body of Christ and you don't come into this relationship and find your room where your people are. You're with your people. You're with your people, the people of God. Worldly marks of distinction are not considered. Nationality, economic class, education, race, profession, working class, slave or free, even a barbarian background. Paul and I sent in to check our DNA ancestry a few months ago. We were just making sure there wasn't any Neanderthal in our family. But if there'd been any Neanderthal in our family, you'd still accept me, wouldn't you? You'd still accept me. See, we're all related because we have the same father and we're following the same master. And so, rich or poor, white or black, educated or not, male or female, whatever blood or nationality, Christ considers each one of us his friends and members of his body. Our relationship with each other and, of course, our attitude should be in keeping with this truth of unity in Christ. Your comments. Conversion is for everybody who wants to be saved and is willing to act on faith in Christ initially and after baptism. Doesn't matter what your race is. Typical 
divisive characteristics like class and economic condition, blood or background, do not matter. Conversion is for everybody who wants to get out of sin by responding to the gospel of Christ. One translation says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. When I teach this, people sometimes want to know what these different classifications mean, especially one that we're not commonly familiar with in our reading of the New Testament, and those are Scythians. Uh, what in the world is a, a Scythian? A tribe of people who occupied and dwelt in, migrated to north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and they were scattered far toward the east, uh, anciently making connections, they would probably have a modern day representation with people of Russia. And they became known as very fierce warriors. And some historians argued that they were pressed and pushed into learning how to be good warriors because of the oppression that came against them. They would be moved about from place to place around the Caspian. Those are the people who were known as Scythians, and apparently some Scythians obeyed the gospel. Now, when they obeyed the gospel, they became members of the body of Christ. When Gentiles obeyed the gospel, they became members of the body of Christ. As long as you don't bring your previous sins with you, even sins that may have been common in your culture, when you come into Christ, there are not various rooms you go to. You're with your people then. Questions or comments? Verse 12 takes us positive. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Since there is this security and unity in Christ, those who are abiding in Christ should want to put on these virtues. And if I put on these virtues, and you put on these virtues, and if our people of Hispanic background put on these virtues, and the white people put on these virtues, and the black people put on these virtues, and all of us put on these virtues, then what we look like, where we came from, that'll all be overridden by the fact that we're the same people in terms of how we live and who we serve. Therefore, I should want to have these virtues in my life. Compassion. Or some translations say tender mercies. That's a heart of pity. It is feeling the pain of another. As opposed to just a cold hardness about you. That you're just not touched by somebody else's suffering and pain. Compassion is a heart of pity where you feel the pain of others. Kindness, the pleasant 
courtesy that should mark all of our interactions with each other and with people in general. Simple kindness, the pleasant courtesy that marks our interaction with one another. Humility, that's a proper view of who you are. Described in the Bible, there are people with elevated self-esteem, arrogant, pride, thinking that they're greater than they really are. And then sometimes in the Bible, there are people who are described with incredibly low self-esteem, who demean themselves and consider themselves of no value and no worth. Humility is in between those. Humility is where God's Word enables you to see exactly who you are. You look in the mirror of James 1, and you know who you are. You compare yourself to Christ. You consider what God has done for you, and you know who you are. That's humility. Humility is not self-hatred. It is not the loathing of self. It is the proper estimation of who you are in terms of God's definitions. Read more about that in Philippians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 12. Meekness is willing to be restrained and governed. Have you ever met somebody who's just out of control and they just don't care? And they just act on impulse. And it doesn't matter what the law says. And it doesn't matter what the boss says. doesn't matter what other authorities say. They're just unwilling to be governed or restrained by anybody. And when those kind of people come to the word of God, they're not going to be, they're not going to be submissive to God's word. Meekness is an essential approach where you are willing to be governed and restrained. Patience. Some translations will have the word long-suffering. I've always said it that way. Long-suffering. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, think about what the opposite of long-suffering is. It is short-tempered. And if you say it that way, it may help you to remember what it's about. It may help you talk to somebody about it. Long-suffering. On the other hand, short-tempered, impulsive, impatient with people. We are taught here to bear with one another, be willing to forgive, anxious to resolve complaints in keeping with the will and the example of Christ. If I'm a child of God, part of the elect of God, these are the identifying marks that God ought to see in me. Tenderness, kindness, humility, meekness, being long-suffering, as described in verse 14. All these things we're talking about will help you get to heaven. Remember who you are, as described by Paul in Colossians chapter 3. Raised with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. The new man, now in verse 12, the elect of God. If we are clear about who we are, then this kind of teaching we just absorb. It becomes a part of us and it disciplines us. And it gets us ready 
for heaven. If we know who we are and we appreciate it, then we are well directed by these virtues and we put off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language. Now let's continue. But first, comments, questions? These are all gifts from God. Pardon? These are all gifts from God. They're gifts from God. But they're not forced on you. You have to take them and open them up and express appreciation to God for them and then use them. That's the way that works. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. ESV. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. I'm going to use a construction illustration. I'm always nervous about using construction uh, illustrations because I'm not good at building anything. And there's a Aggie engineer there at the back of the building, you know, who could, pre, who could review everything I'm saying. So I'm going to make a stab at this. So, construction illustration. You have good, substantial building materials. You have the highest quality steel. You have excellent, well-chosen lumber. You have perfectly mixed mortar. But if you don't have these good materials fastened together well, the building will not hold up. Fastening is important. Darrell says I got it right. Fastening is important. So it is in the life of a Christian. You can have a very good knowledge and you can have definitions in mind of all these virtues that are listed in verse 12. And you can even participate to some extent in these things. But the question is, what holds it all together? What fastens it all? Love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the glue. It's the bonding material. It fastens all of these things together. So it's not a scattered sort of thing. I've got some humility up here that I dabble around with every now and then. And way over here there's some long suffering. And No, it all fits together. It all fits together. And what bonds it is love. And so without love, even though you know about all these qualities, you don't really have what you need. To be complete and mature before God, the bond of all perfection needs to hold all these things together. And then I'm going to go ahead and add verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. This word rule is interesting to me. I'm, I'm not anywhere near a Greek scholar. But the New Testament was written in Greek, and so I'll consult uh, Greek lexicographers' works every now and then. And the Greek word here, rule, means to act as an umpire. To act as an umpire. The umpire gives the final decision, so it should be with us. When there are inner conflicts, the peace of God, the peace of Christ should be the ruling, answering factor. So, you got all these things jumping around in your head. 
exactly how they go together and what you ought to do about them and you have this impulse and maybe I ought to do this and you've got all these virtues that you have embraced but how does it all come together and how what do I do about this and about that you pray about it and you ask God's peace to rule peace that passes all understanding it's the influence of Christ's cohesiveness and God's peace that makes this all work together in us. Um, God presides over how all these things fit together in our lives. Marvelous, marvelous concept. Questions or comments before my takeaways? We have about 10 minutes of takeaways. Lying is just one of the easiest things to do. If somebody came to me and said, I've got a real tempting thing for you, uh, let's become involved in some extortion. I don't know where to start. I, I don't know how to, I, I don't know anything about extortion. I'm bad at finances. And uh, so somebody comes to me and says, I've got this real complicated scam and it's, I don't know where to start. Some things requires some back knowledge in order to implement that particular element of corruption. Lying. Anybody can do it. I suspect I did some of it when I was six and seven. Anybody can do it. It only requires one thing. One of these. And you can do it. There's usually no financial investment. There's no extensive training. You don't have to go to lying school. All you need is a little bit of temptation in one of these. What ought to be the most powerful restraint against lying is the utter clarity of God's word. God says, don't do it. That should be sufficient, shouldn't it? In addition to the other matters... That dishonesty messes up relationships and gets you into trouble and could get you into legal trouble. Could cause you to be killed maybe in some circumstances. In addition to all those motivations, primary in the mind of a Christian is God said don't do it. I'm not going to do it in any, any sort of a way. But it's easy. That's the danger. <clears throat> the key core argument of the paragraph is what you've already done. You have put off the old self with its practices. The key element of this text is what you've already done. You've been buried with Christ in baptism, explained back in chapter 2. You've put off the old self with its practices. That's what Paul is working with there. When he tells Christians not to do something, his primary reason given here is you have changed. You're not living in sin anymore. You're living for God through Christ. If your surrender to the authority of Christ, being buried with Christ in baptism, means anything, it means you're not going to let those old sins reappear in your life. You're going to try to stop them before they even approach. And if they intrude, you're going to kick them out. You have put off 
the old self with its practices. That ought to restrain us from lying or anything else we used to do before conversion. Now, people always talking about the Bible is so negative. Let's address that for a few minutes. Somebody very often who hasn't even read the Bible will make the charge. Well, the Bible is so negative. Just puts a fence around me. Tells me all these things that I cannot do. Don't do this and don't do that. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. I want to make two observations about that kind of argument against God's word. Number one, the negatives that God put in place have positive outcome every single time. The negatives, the thou shalt nots, the forbidden, keeps us out of trouble. That's a positive, isn't it? So don't just look at something that's written grammatically in the negative and assume, well, that's just going to make me sad. It's just something I can't do. No, if you'll refrain from that activity, do not lie, it'll have great positive outcome in your life. And the second thing is, all through the Bible, what about all the positives that are there? Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I don't like the Bible because it's just so positive? <laughs> no, they, they argue the other end of that. But there are positive virtues that we are to put in place. The Bible is not a book loaded just with thou shalt nots. On the other side of the page, there's always thou shalt. God's telling us how best we live as people made in his image. And so while it says, do not lie and put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, it also says, be holy, beloved, compassionate, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and even tells you that the peace of Christ will dominate and rule as these things work in your life, and Christ, glue, will hold it all together. Very often the criticism against the Bible comes from people who simply have not read it. And then I want to make the point one more time <clears throat> that the rule of Christ binds it all together. You know, somebody not under the authority of Christ could learn these virtues and to some extent try to put them to use. But it wouldn't be a permanent way of life because Christ would be absent. There are atheists who may have some sense or degree of compassion. There are people of pagan background who believe in multiple gods who may have some sense of humility about them or may be kind to one another. What Paul is telling us is, even if you know about these virtues and you become involved in them, uh, in them, what holds it all together and makes it a whole and a way of life is putting yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ. Rule. The rule of Christ. That's the authority of Christ. And that's what makes it all work together. So, let me read... 
I'm going to start at 3.1. We're going to try to put all this together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Final questions or comments? Colossians chapter 3 we have studied today from verse 9 down to verse 15. That puts us in position to study continuing at verse 16 Wednesday night.